Welcome to episode 117 of The Professor and the Hack. We're in the election campaign. I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson, and the Professor Peter Van Onselen joins me as always. How are you, Pete? Oh, make it stop, Hugh. How many weeks left? <laughs> Please make it stop. Well, we're kind of halfway through, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, not not even, j- just not even, but you're right. It's essentially a six-week campaign, and we're essentially three or so weeks into it. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because even though that's the sort of timeline halfway mark, we all know that with undecided voters, it's the second half of the campaign that really ramps up. And it already feels long. It already feels like there's been a lot of divergence on some issues, as well as controversies, as well as movements in the economy, uh, you name it, which we'll get to. But the, the real rubber will hit the road in that last, probably in that last week or two, where we'll start to get a picture on whether this is a close election, whether it is a possible hung parliament, whether there might be a blowout that the two-party vote is reflecting towards Labor, which starts to see the Prime Minister visiting seats that you might not expect him to visit if he thought he could still win the election, and do the wheels come off? Or is there some sort of fight back like he managed against Bill Shorten, where suddenly Labor starts to look like it's a little bit panicking? Well, Labour on the polls hasn't done too badly by having Anthony Albanese knocked out for a little while with COVID. (laughs) He comes back into the game. How does that alter the arithmetic? Is it that much of a benefit for Labour? It's, you know, his polling numbers are not exactly, you know, stratospheric. Well, you certainly hope for his prime ministership, if he does win, that his seven days in ISO or thereabouts hasn't helped the Labour campaign, because that would strike me as, as, as a bad potent of things to come in terms of Uh, his value to the party if they were to win government. In terms of his value to the campaign for the remaining three weeks arriving back on the scene, look, I think it's, you'd like to think um, no matter how difficult a leader might find elements of their campaign or their personal ratings, it's got to help Labor at the pointy end of the campaign to have their leader back because ultimately, whether we like it or not, it's become more presidential and it's him versus Scott Morrison. It's probably not been a bad thing to be able to showcase the team. I think Jason Clare, as campaign spokesperson, has done very well. I think Jim Chalmers has elevated. And then the occasional spot appearances by the likes of Ed Husick or Penny Wong has been useful too. But as far as voters go, they want to decide whether they're ready to turf out a prime minister. And a key component to that is to look over at the other guy, uh, and he'll be out of ISO soon enough, and decide what they think of him as an alternative. And, And You know, are they inspired by him or at the very least, are they not scared of him or at the very least, do they not dislike him? And I think the more rather than the less that we get to see of Albo will be important to that process. And he gets back, by the way, Hugh, just in time for Labor's campaign launch over in WA. So depending on at what point people are listening to this, he's expected to shoot straight over to WA. That's what he wanted to do right before he went into ISO anyway from a campaign perspective. So he'll do that in collaboration with their campaign launch. And it is unusual to have a campaign launch in WA. I, I couldn't think of a time that it happened. Somebody on social media mentioned that maybe John Curtin had, but then they rescinded that. But that's obviously going right back to World War II. I can't remember either major party having a campaign launch in WA. It speaks finally for West Australians to the potential significance of the West, at least in Labor's eyes, that they want to have the launch there, tap into some of that parochialism, tap into some of that popularity of Mark McGowan, and help themselves to the seats that they think they can win in the West because, you know, one is certainly up for grabs, uh, that's Swan. Two, if you include Pierce, Christian Porter's old seat should be picked up by Labor if they want to even consider getting a majority of their own. And possibly three or more if you include Hasluck and some of the other seats. 
if things start to go in their favour in these last three weeks? Well, if they're going to get Hasluck, they're going to get other seats across the country. So it ceases to be really much of a race, you'd have thought. Well, I think you're right about that, but I'm just not... I'm just not entirely convinced. Look, if we're playing this back after election day and, and Labor wins in a landslide and they pick up Hasluck as part of it, you'll be proven right. And, and that's, I guess that's the most likely scenario. The only question mark I have is this pandemic election, even more than most elections, could well throw up big differences from state to state. And what little I'm getting told about how the polling looks from state to state by both major parties, it suggests that it could be lumpy. But I think, yeah, you're right. You know, a seat like Hasluck falling it would have to be incredibly lumpy, wouldn't it, with attitudes in the West versus other parts of the country for the Labor Party to only scrape home but get Hasluck because picking up a seat like Hasluck against Ken Wyatt on a margin of around 5 or so percent in the West, it would suggest that other seats on the East Coast are going to fall such that we don't necessarily need to wait for WA with the two-hour time difference on election night to know who's won. It's interesting, isn't it? Because yes, by going to WA, they focus on their hopes in WA, but there is an opportunity cost to that mm. because wherever you hold your launch gets publicity around the nation, but gets particular publicity in the state where you're holding the launch, you are signaling that that state is important to you. So, you know, tactically, is there an opportunity cost that he's not holding it in Queensland? I think there is. I think there is. I've actually spoken to the sort of Labour hardheads about that and asked exactly that question. And the argument given to me was that, look, everyone always launches in Queensland. Uh, it hasn't saved us in the past. We're going to pivot and see a micro advantage, if you will, uh, in WA. In other words, they've got to pick up Queensland seats. They hope to, but Queensland is already very LMP dominant. And Labor actually believes it can win this election without picking up seats in Queensland, which I find quite interesting because, boy, wouldn't that make Queensland an outlier state as a very big and growing state? were it to still have the distribution that it currently has, and I'm not exact on this, but it's somewhere around 21, 22 LMP seats to around eight or nine Labor. So it's very skewed in the LMP's favour. If that was to hold, then and Labor nonetheless find a way to win the election around the rest of the country, Queensland really would be remarkably out of step with the government of the day. So that, that's their argument. We don't know the details, by the way, yet, unless I've missed it, uh, on what the Conservatives are planning to do or what the Liberal Party are planning to do. Three years ago, it was in Brisbane and it was on Mother's Day. Mother's Day this time would be the following weekend uh, with two weeks to go. They might look to emulate that and hope that history repeats itself, or they might like look to do the more traditional thing and wait till one week out and hold it. And that's when Mother's Day was three years ago. It was one week out. They would have to be doing it two weeks out to do it on Mother's Day this year. Is there a particular advantage to holding a launch on Mother's Day? No, I, and I mocked it three years ago. Because, you know, Scott Morrison brought out his mum trying to, you know, in, and I remember there was a good satire on the on the ABC actually about them, you know, some, some satirists acting as his campaign advisors in a mock-up uh, that he decided he's got a woman problem. How does he fix that? I oh, know, let's have the launch on Mother's Day and invite Jenny up on stage, invite mum up on stage. And, you know, I know women, look at them. Um, I, you know, that's right. My mum was a woman and there was all the rest of it. So, I, I mocked it three years ago, but, you know, he sort of gave both of them a bunch of flowers uh, up on the stage and gave that that corny line of his, how good is Mother's Day? And, and off he went. Maybe he'll look to do that again. But I don't know. What do you think? I, I think the cynicism towards Scott Morrison about that sort of stuff is much greater now than it was three years ago. Three years ago, it was inside the bubble cynicism towards him. 
I think now uh, that cynicism is a bit wider. Well, uh, how good is motherhood is uh, the ultimate motherhood statement, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> look, on matters economic, we've had this inflation figure that has come in at 5.1%. Even more disturbingly, what's called non-discretionary inflation, that is the stuff that you can't avoid paying for, like food and uh, power and rent and so on, has gone up across the country by 6.6% over the course of the past year. These are astonishing figures. People say they're the highest inflation figures since the GST came in, which of course is true, but the GST was structurally intended to bring on higher inflation. Exactly right. Exactly right. And had built into the structure of it compensations for uh, groups of people who were vulnerable to those price rises going in there. It was a major tax reform and a one-off inflation hit was part of it. That's a great point, Hewitt. It undersells the significance of this inflation number, the line that I'm as guilty as others of using, which is to say it's the highest inflation numbers in 20 years, because it's a comparison point exactly as you point out, which is not an, not analogous at all, actually. So it is it is akin to the sort of inflation numbers that we saw back in the 70s and 80s at different points. And so we wind up with a situation where the Reserve Bank is now expected to act if it is completely, if you like, politically neutral, it has said it wanted to wait to see what wage growth was doing before it made a decision, and that might push out a decision until after the election. But given the size of the rise, there's a lot of commentary that if it wants to indicate that it is, in fact, truly independent, it has to put up interest rates at its next meeting, which comes next week. And so we find a situation where voters not only grappling, as indeed they didn't need the CPI figures to let them know that things have got more expensive down at the supermarket, down at the petrol station, down at all these things. And their mortgages are about to get more expensive too. How do you think this is going to play in the election campaign? Well, I can't entirely decide if it's going to hurt the government or favour them if they make an economic argument based on a scare campaign, which is that a time of high inflation and rising interest rates is not the time to risk the Labour Party who are the worst economic managers. That's the spin. I'm not saying it's true. I'm certainly not saying it's true. It's the spin. I can't decide if this will help that argument for them at the pointy end of the campaign or if they go out with the electoral tide because voters are upset at them for you know their cost of living pressures that they're incurring. Acknowledging, by the way, that this is not all about international issues. We have inflationary issues around the world, that is true, and there's little doubt that some of the international events are significant contributors to inflation. But we're also pump-priming the hell out of this economy and have been doing so in the COVID and post-COVID environment. We also have a government that is potentially exacerbating the worst elements of what high inflation can do, that is high interest rates, by trying to encourage people, shoehorn them even, first home buyers into mortgages that they're not used to paying when interest rates are about to go up, with smaller deposits, by the way, under their home borrowers scheme to try to encourage first home ownership, smaller deposits that go against what the Royal Commission recommended in terms of responsible lending, right at the time when they've announced a policy like that, that they're sort of so proud of, and there are tens of thousands of people falling into that category, they're going to be lampooned with higher interest rates. And people aren't ready for this because the cash rate is so low at 0.1, Albo, if you're listening, 0.1, the cash rate is very low, but it's going to go up. And, and the question for me at the next Reserve Bank meeting is not solely whether they put it up, but whether they put it up enough, because the argument is that they would be potentially, well, they'd certainly be derelict in their duty, given the inflation numbers, to make no change, and they would be accused of a political decision. But even if they only put it up by 0.25, they could be derelict in their duty. 
there's some talk that they should at the very least put it up by you know uh, 0.5 potentially or at least near enough to that maybe 0.4 to get it so it's a cash rate of 0.5 at the end of the adjustment but you know the banks are going to pass this on very quickly and people are used to low interest rates and being heavily leveraged to try to have taken advantage of those in recent years that they are going to struggle with that And, and we could well have a scenario Hugh where people have significant negative equity in their homes because house prices collapse at the same time in a high inflationary environment while wages are still stagnant and interest rates are going up, meaning that mortgage repayments go up as well. It's a diabolical mix. And the only thing worse than it would be you know, stagflation or a deflationary environment. That's true economic chaos. But the kind of inflation we're talking about is not only concerning in and of itself, but people aren't used to it. You know, older generations are, the younger generations aren't. And it's going to come as quite a shock to a lot of people who are highly leveraged. And I guess the only other thing, you know, you talk about the only thing that would be worse would be rising unemployment. True. Because then you factor into a thing. As long as people are in jobs, they can, you know, they can hang on. Their negative equity in the home becomes irrelevant until you sell the home. So they can hang on and keep going as long as they've got a job going. But let me throw a fly in the ointment even of the good unemployment figures. Underemployment remains an issue. You know, you work an hour a week and you qualify as being employed and therefore you're not part of that 4% unemployment figure that is projected, if we believe the projections, to go lower. But that's only an hour a week that you need to be employed to, to be considered employed. Underemployment continues to be a problem. And here's my real fly in the ointment. We're opening back up immigration, skilled migration, work visas as the pandemic fades. That is not a bad thing for productivity and it's not a bad thing for economic growth. But it could be a bad thing for the very low unemployment numbers, because I think it's an artificially low unemployment number built on a very high adjustment that we've had, a very sudden adjustment that sees less tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of fewer migrants looking for jobs in Australia. Yeah. You talk about pump priming and that having a factor, having an inflationary effect being one of the factors in the inflationary effect. But of course, labour would have kept up said at the time, but would have kept up some of those special fiscal measures during the pandemic to keep things going. But might have even done more, Hugh. Might have done more. Mm. And so therefore, that is a point of vulnerability for them if uh, Morrison can exploit it to say, well, you know, have a look at Labour, the inflationary effect would have been higher under them. But it does give in the short term, Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, has been quite effective in this campaign, it allows him to go out and talk about the triple whammy of Scott Morrison, higher interest rates, higher inflation, lower real wages. And that last element, too, goes to people, because if you're in any kind of a wage negotiation at the moment, and if you're not seeking at least a 5% pay rise, probably 6%, you're a mug. Well, you're getting an effective pay cut, aren't you? It's as simple as that. You're getting a pay cut if you're not getting getting over 5% on the current rate. Now, if that flows through, and to date, those wages haven't risen with inflation, but if if it was, then the economy would be in all kinds of pain. One of the things that really strikes me is that that inflation figure has already blown out the underlying assumptions in the budget that came out last month. It blows out the underlying assumptions that's in what's called PIFO, the pre-election fiscal update, which basically said, look, not much has changed since, since the budget was just a month ago, which is reasonable. So if you look out across the inflation rate, which was expecting 4.25%. Still still high, by the way. <laughs> still high, but it's coming in at over 5 mm. And then if you look at the wage rises, the real wage growth, which um, 
was an expectation that was going to be in there that we would wind up with positive wage growth. In other words, wages would start to grow ahead of inflation. Well, you can't see that happening. And if it does happen, it's going to be up around 5% or more, which is going to have other all kinds of other effects running through the economy. And the other thing to look at is that, and it goes to the economic manager argument, we're in rising inflation, but we're also in slowing growth. So much is made about the fact that we're growing well, we've come out of the pandemic, we're running forecast this year at 4.25%. But the budget figures say that is expected to drop off to 3.5% next year, lower again the year after. So what this says to me is that this moment may be as good as it gets, or perhaps the moment before the inflation figure came in yesterday was as good as it gets, because we're going to see inflation staying high. We're going to see probably the gap between inflation and wages get even worse. The only alternative being that there are big wage claims that start to be successful. And it's going to be in the context of lower growth over time, slowing growth over time. And that's not great, whoever wins the election. It's not. And there's only one way out of this, other than just holding your breath and hope that you can come up for oxygen in time before it's too late. And that is this. It is economic reform. It is serious structural reform to work on the budget, which is in structural deficit, to work on the inefficiencies and deficiencies of the tax system, of the federation, to embrace supposedly sacred cows that can't be touched when it comes to reform, which can include all manner of things. We've sort of rabbited on about this before. But political cowardice is the worst thing at the current moment. And political cowardice is what we have more of right now on all sides, I would argue, than for a very long time in Australian politics. So, you know, the environment that is there, it's not a fiction that we're painting with stagnant wages, with high inflation, with rising interest rates, with risks to economic growth, which are going to potentially see, even if you try to solve wage rises, that the strain that that could put on business could be such that it then pushes us back into slower or lower growth and even recessionary tendencies, quite frankly. But of course, if you don't do it, then the cost of living pressures on ordinary Australians are such that, that they are really going to battle and battle hard. All of that is a reality. And the only solution to it is bloody hard work by our political class which means serious reform, which we have not had. And what we're about to face is in no small part a consequence of having, I would argue, of having had two new governments in a row that have failed the test of major structural economic reform. They've had some other reforms, but I'm talking about the Abbott administration coming in, which is the current government, not taking advantage of major reform on entry. And I'm talking about the Rudd administration when they came in, not taking advantage of major reform on entry. And I'm not arguing the point about other things that they've done or things that the other side of politics have undone, frankly. Well, mind, you, mind you, Rudd tried for a resources super profits tax, which pretty much did what? But then he backed down. He should have taken it to the election. The, the, the version that Julia Gillard ended up, well, he never got to the election, did he? But the version that Julia Gillard tried to put in was a joke. The original version that Ken Henry wanted was meaningful, but of course, special interest got in the road and Rudd had already done himself so much damage by walking away when he couldn't get the ETS that he wanted because the Greens and the opposition wouldn't back it. He didn't call a double disillusion. So he his political timidity cost him, I would argue, because frankly, it would have been worth getting speared after one term and going to a double disillusion election if that had happened for his own legacy. But I don't think it would have happened. I actually think he would have won and he would have been able to build into the system the kind of reform 
that was built in when Howard did like for like on a GST election in 98, and which Hawke and Keating did time and time again when they found a way to win elections in the 80s with all of their microeconomic reforms. So my point is really not so much to be critical of the pollies. It's just to make the point that for whatever reason, because we can blame the media as well, certainly, we can blame the public with its sort of hip pocket voting, certainly. We blame everyone, but whoever we blame, we're at a position now, we're at a, a, if you like, a crossroad moment in history where the only way to fix the problems is with reform. And if we don't embrace that reform, we risk our country uh, having a much tougher time of it, a la Fraser years style, in the coming number of years, not you know, number of electoral cycles, even not just in the short term. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack, episode 117, as we roll down to this most intriguing, most unusual election I don't think I've ever seen an election where both leaders are rated so poorly for their competency. But in any event, someone is going to win, even if it comes through some negotiated arrangement with independents and other cross benches. someone is going to win and someone must therefore lose. So let's just take a moment that's left to us to have a look at that. Peter Dutton came out in recent days, I think it was to the Daily Telegraph, and said that he had put away his ambitions for leadership. <laughs> However, I note that the uh, Australian Financial Review has a, a very laudatory feature article on him at the moment in which it's very plain that he has leadership ambitions. Who wins the leadership of the Liberal Party if they lose this election? Hmm. And what does it mean? Yeah, look, good question. To some extent... And I know this feels like uh, I'm piking from giving a direct answer, but to some extent it comes down to how they lose and who's left if they lose. So if they lose very narrowly, I wouldn't put it out of the realms of possibility that Scott Morrison actually stays on. I don't think that's the most likely scenario, but... He couldn't take them to another election, surely. Well, but he could stay on for a while um, in the hope that it falls over in time for an early election or that it falls over with some sort of recalibration. I don't see that happening, don't get me wrong, because... A lot of the independents have almost made it clear that their willingness, when I think Zali Stegall has overtly said this, that the ability to support a Liberal Party in government would require the removal of Scott Morrison. Now, if, if, if the consideration is to try to get into government as a minority government, either soon after the election or shortly after the election, Josh Frydenberg's got better chance of that than Peter Dutton. I'd say Peter Dutton has less chance of it than Scott Morrison, which is saying something. But if it's just simply about acknowledging the defeat in whatever form and then looking for a new leader for three years' time on the assumption that it will take that long. I think that people could be surprised that Peter Dutton beats Josh Frydenberg, if not in the initial vote, in a subsequent vote before we get to an election in three years' time. But it really does come down to the complexion of the parliament. Josh Frydenberg has worked very hard on his colleagues, but if a lot of those moderates lose to Teal independence, for example, that enhances Dutton's capacity to shift the party to the right and depending on what does or doesn't happen up in Queensland with, with the Frankenstein of the LMP, that also could have an impact on Peter Dutton and where his support lies. So you almost need to know who loses seat by seat to get a better understanding of what type of Liberal Party ideologically is left and where it's likely to want to go before you can write off or write in Dutton or Frydenberg. 
So they both have somewhat marginal seats, so both are notionally vulnerable to being voted out at the election. But it, Well, that's a good point too, Hugh. That's a very good point. One of them or both of them might not be there. But assuming that, that they both get in, mm. it is simply about those men. There's no one else. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, in, in fact, I remember having a conversation with a minister about who else was left if both of them did lose their seats. And it became a real difficult thing trying to work out who sits next in line because you know, there's there's no women that, that really sit next in line. Anne Rustin is on the rise, but a long way off something like that, a long way off something like that, but being made campaign spokesperson and being touted as the potential health minister is, has seen her star rise. Maurice Payne's in the wrong chamber and she doesn't like doing media anyway. Karen Andrews, I think, is very good, but I'm not sure as many of her colleagues think she is in that sense. So who's left if we're not looking at Dutton and Frydenberg? Well, I mean, I almost can't believe I'm saying this, but you know, you're, you're looking at, at Angus Taylor or Paul Fletcher is competent, but he's not charismatic and he's a moderate. Uh, Simon Birmingham's in the wrong house. It, it, it's hard to work out. You know, Alan Tudge is damaged. Christian Porter's gone. Um, Dan Tian, uh, you know, has skills, but I don't see him as a leader. It's pretty bereft. Somebody made the point to me that maybe you would want to skip right forward to a new generation and bring in a hawk like Andrew Hastie, who's charismatic, young, talented, all the rest of it. Very conservative, not my cup of tea in that sense. But there's almost some something in that, that if you lost Dutton and Frydenberg, maybe you just go, look, stuff it. Let's put Andrew Hastie in and give him two shots. Uh, a little bit like what sort of often happens at state level, but doesn't tend to happen federally. Uh, let's just, you know, put him in and, and, and move move the ship on. But then you're putting someone in who was only an assistant minister in government to suddenly being the leader of the opposition. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think it's true. It has to come down. You know, it'd be interesting if one of, one or heaven forbid, both of those men didn't get up. You'd have to then totally redraw coalition prospects or Liberal Party prospects. Yeah. But uh, assuming if it's there, it has to be between those two men. And then it becomes a question between which one is more immediately likable to the general population, which would be Frydenberg, and which one is most likely to act as a kind of a destructive force that that relentlessly takes on a Liberal, oh, sorry, Labour Party government uh, with the capacity to, to crack it open in the way that uh, Abbott, you know, brought down Labour by just relentlessly attacking it uh, to the point that it, it, that it couldn't be re-elected. You know, he was no good as a prime minister. He was disastrous as a prime minister. But bloody hell, he could uh, he could slogan down a government like few other people in the business. And you you sort of assume that Peter Dutton would be much better at that than Josh Frydenberg, don't you? But but having said that, Peter Dutton, I, he he's actually quite likable one on one, and a lot of people say that in a surprising tone. But he's not. Uh, he's he's he, and he's charismatic apparently in his own electorate to be able to do well. But he's not somebody who strikes me as, as electable uh, in the broader public sphere, and certainly not in large cohorts of the electorate where new liberal seats would be at even more risk, I think, uh, than they are under Scott Morrison. He's not going to win too many seats in Melbourne. No, the, that's uh, true. For the coalition. So the same question must then be put to Labour, and in many ways it's an even more profound challenge, because if Labour was to lose this election against uh, such a, you know, a weakened identity as Scott Morrison after a decade, they have to, they have to wonder what on earth they've got to do, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Look, if Labor find a way to lose this election, when the last election was considered the unlosable election that took over the mantle from John Hewson in two thousand and three, uh, in nineteen ninety three rather, 
then suddenly where do they go next? Well, the big battle that they will face, and they need to have an ideological battle, but before they can even have an ideological battle, the battle will be generational because the next generation in labor will be looking at the leftovers from so many defeats who are still the senior players, many of whom still have leadership ambitions. And the younger generation will be looking at them and saying, no, guys, get out of the way. So the ones left, I'm talking about Tanya Plibersek, Chris Bowen, Tony Burke, maybe Jason Clare. Jim Chalmers is a bit of generation next, even though he's very senior all of a sudden, because you know he, he was a staffer more recently and then became an MP. It would go to Jim Chalmers, surely. Well, you would think so, but then you know there, there are questions about whether or not he has the numbers, particularly under the voting structure if Tanya Plibersek, for example, decides to put her hand up. But generation next inside the party would want a whole clean out, irrespective of who the leader was, even if, for example, Tanya became leader or Jim Chalmers became leader. All the hangers-on who are currently very senior include Mark Butler in that. You know, all this cohort who have been ministers from the Rudd and Gillard years and have then been there for so long in opposition, failing time and time again, throw Bill Shorten in the mix. The next generation of Labor will strongly want them all gone. They'll want them out of shadow cabinet and they'll want a complete generational reboot. Whether they get that or not, I don't know. Sure. But it can't be just personalities. No. They might want them all gone, but then can't say, right, well, now we're going to keep doing what they did uh, with a new set of faces. You've got to come up with a, a really profound self-examination about the future of, if you like, traditional progressive politics, which is what Labor represents. And that was going to be my next point. I don't actually know what that is. So they've got two problems, the generational ambition-based problem, which I think they will put first, and then whatever happens there, whether they do or don't move on from the old guard, one thing that they can't fail to do, which I think you agree with, is just pretend like nothing has gone wrong here and keep doing the same thing over and over again. They need to have a look at what the hell they stand for. But I don't think that'll be their first move. I think if they lose, the first move will be the, the personality one. And that creates the prospects for all kinds of nasty battles yep. and scores settling, and that will play out to a greater or lesser degree in public, probably a greater degree in public. And so if the uh, Scott Morrison was to somehow muster a win, and he's certainly not out of the running for that, then there is that prospect that the Labour Party at that point could descend into a kind of a generational bloodletting with bitter... You know, some might go quietly, Shorten might say, look, my time's done, I'm happy to go. But a Tony Burke is unlikely to do that, you'd think. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Chris Bowen will do it either. It's going to be really interesting... In terms of the politics, as well as the ideological battles, as well as, quite frankly, what happens next in any type of planning by whoever does win you know, going forward with my lament about the lack of major reform, it's going to be a really interesting next term because whoever loses will be going through all sorts of tumult. Whoever wins will be faced with enormous challenges with serious question marks about whether they have an actual plan as opposed to the BS rhetoric of a plan. So we're in for political, for the politically interested, we're in for a fascinating three years. For everyone else, it's concerning, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's an uncertain, worrying three years. 
And Hugh, we haven't even talked about international relations. No, indeed. It does remind me of some old general, I think it might have been the Duke of Wellington, who said victory is the worst possible thing that can happen <laughs> except for defeat, as he looked out across the uh, complete chaos of broken bodies, etc. after after a battle. Battle of Waterloo, wasn't it? <laughs> I think it might have been, yes. And uh, yeah. So whoever wins, as you say, has got a lot of work to do, and it's going to be difficult. Whoever loses has got to fight. This may well be Scott Morrison's Waterloo. That is not a prediction. <laughs> Well, the Belgians might come over the border. Who knows? Matthias Corman, where are you? <laughs> Great to talk to you, uh, Peter, and we'll talk again next week. Looking forward to it. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.